Listen up, you ungrateful mama's boys. Today is Mother's Day, and all I see is a bunch of worthless, pathetic babies giving your mama a bunch of nothing. Private, what have you given your mama? Sir, nothing, sir. That's right, nothing. I bet you think it's all about you, don't you? Sir, yes, sir. That's right, you do. Well, today is Mother's Day, and for once in your sorry existence, it is not about you. Private, did you get your mom breakfast in bed? I... I don't... I didn't think so. 30 on the ground now. Gentlemen, what we have here is a failure to appreciate. I said appreciate. You wouldn't know appreciation if it came up and bit you on the behind. You better start standing tall. Or sitting tall. You just put your mamas through nine months of pain and suffering. You brought her to death's door. And what does she get? She gets you dumping your SpaghettiOs on your head and running your brand new pair of onesies. I've never seen such a sorry bunch of mealy mouth thumb suckers in all my years in the core. Start treating your mother's right. Give her a foot massage. Put the toilet seat down for Pete's sake. Stop being a drain on society. And while you're at it, learn to walk. Now, forward march. Well, there you go. All right. Happy Mother's Day. There's a verse in the Bible that says we're supposed to greet each other with a holy kiss. And for those of us that are not touchy-feely, we avoid that verse. And instead, what we do is come up with ways to reinterpret it. So I reinterpreted today. Today, we're going to greet each other with a, with a Hershey kiss instead. This is, this is for the moms, but here's the deal. I know moms. They would never not share. All right? So you can go ahead and have a kiss. A kiss, one kiss, there is a second service. We want to make sure that it makes it through to them. And do understand that there will be a judgment seat of Christ. <clears throat> and if you cheat in church, you'll be caught. Be sure your sins will find you out. But at the same time, <clears throat> if the person next to you doesn't take one, you can politely ask to have theirs. It is good to have you here today. We're glad you came. You received a folder on the way in. It's got a card on the inside. Take that out right now. We'll need that. It's going to be really important at the end of our teaching today. For now, put your name on it. <clears throat> Go ahead and put a way to contact you on that. If this is your first time, put as much information as you're comfortable filling out on your way out today. You'll notice a table um, out on by a banner. I say that because there are two tables today, okay? And you might get confused here. There's a table there with uh, some books on there that we'd like to give you as a way of saying thanks for coming and being a part of our day. Janet Swank saw the other table today and said, what, are we having a raffle? So, ah, Janet, what are we going to do, dear? No, we'll explain that in just a little while, all right? Oh, Mother's Day, fun day. I'll tell you what, there are a handful of days in the life of a pastor, especially after you've been preaching for a little while, that get a little bit challenging. Christmas and Easter. I mean, only so many things you can say about that story. You all know it. You all know the reality of it. You know the way it plays out. And uh, trying to be creative, is, it's always a challenge, but a fun challenge. Mother's Day is another one of those days. You want a message that, that addresses moms, that addresses families, that, that really does a nice job. And, you know, a lot of pastors go dip into the well of Proverbs 31. And I can say pretty proudly that for two decades I've avoided that chapter so far because I figure you've probably heard enough sermons from that particular chapter in the Bible. So I was working on what to talk about this week. And, and I mean, 
I had a really, really good sermon planned. I'm not kidding. I don't say that very often. It was wrapped up on Thursday, complete with slideshow, practiced. I'm like, we're ready to go. This is a nice feeling. And inside I have this nagging feeling that, no, this isn't the one. I'm going, no, really, I'm, I'm ready to go. This is the one. And I keep getting this nagging. No, no, there's something else, something else that needs to be said today. I'm like, ah, but, but I'm done. I, I don't want to have to do this. And so I started looking through the Bible, and, and once again I came to, a, came to a chapter that's been, I don't know, it's been pressing on me for the last couple of years. And, and you'll know it's been pressing on me because we've already been there a couple of times. In fact, the fact that we've been there a couple of times really had me questioning, is this where we're supposed to go today? You know, based on some conversations I've had recently, based on just listening to the hearts of people, um, I said, all right, God, we'll put aside the sermon that's ready to go, and we'll go over here. So the other one was really good. I don't know what to think of this one, but we're going to hear what God has to say today from his word. Would you pray with me? Father God, I am so grateful to you that you give us your word as a guide for our lives in tough times, uh, when we're facing challenges. You give us a, a guide as, of right and wrong, knowing what pleases you and what doesn't. We can look to your word and we can always know this is what you want. And today I know there's something you want for us. You want it desperately. And I pray that we will, we will hear what you have to say and that, and that we'll live it. It's really important. In Jesus' name, amen. I was watching the news this week. I'm going to be showing a clip while I do, and you'll notice this clip is from Dr. Oz. No, I don't consider Dr. Oz the news, although these days, it might as well be. Who cares? Anyway, I was watching the news, I was watching the, news the other day, and this, and this lady was on. This lady, her name is uh, Dr. Mary Neal. She's an orthopedic surgeon. She's recently written a book to heaven and back. Kind of a, a genre of books, the books that's out there right now. She was kayaking in 1999 in a river in South America, and her kayak flipped. It got pinned to the bottom of the river, wedged in some rocks, and she was underwater for 15 minutes. Um, She died. It was over. Now, she goes on to tell the story of what happened while she was dead, and and that would make an intriguing sermon in itself today, wouldn't it? It would be fun to talk about that, but that's not where we're going to go. She talked about the fact that she was dead, and then she was brought back onto shore, and her family worked on her, and they revived her. I don't know about you, but I hear that story, and I go, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. I mean, the fact that somebody could be gone and come back to life, that's a miracle. If I had a family member, if I had a relative who uh, had just passed away and we walked out of the hospital room and, and 10 minutes later the doctor came running out and said, hey, 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 wait a second, something happened here. They're back to life. I, I'd say, wow, that's a miracle. And, and yet when I think of that miracle, I, I'd probably spell it this way. It's a little M miracle. I mean, I'm glad they're back. But, but, it's, but it's, it's, it's a minor miracle. Why do I say that? Well, because it wasn't impossible. It was just improbable. It was improbable 
that Dr. Neal would be brought back from the dead. It's improbable that one of our relatives would be brought back after 10 minutes, but it's not impossible. So we put into that category of miracle, but we kind of say, yeah, miracle, but little m miracle. Then there is a story in John chapter 11. And if you want to open your Bible there and just have it open there all morning, you can. We'll be referring up and back to it. There's this story in John chapter 11, and it's the story of a a man who is a very good friend of Jesus. It's one that's pretty familiar. His name is Lazarus, and he dies. And Jesus goes to where he is, dead in a tomb. And and he says to his sister, open the tomb. And and here's what it says in John 11, 59. Jesus said, roll the stone aside. But Martha said... The dead man, but Martha, the dead man's sister protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. It's going to be terrible. And what we know from this story is that after the stone was rolled back, Jesus prayed to heaven, a very public prayer. He prayed purposely to say, God, I know you want to do something here to glorify yourself, to prove who I am, so that people will believe in me. So go ahead and answer my prayer. And then he yelled, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of the grave alive. And the Bible says they, they took his grave clothes off, and, and he, was, he was back to life. Now, there is the Mary Neal miracle that we might spell with a little m. And then there's the Lazarus meal, Lazarus miracle, which is a, a capital M miracle. It is, it is what we would call in Greek a major miracle. This is a biggie. This is huge. I mean, when's the last time you heard of somebody who had been dead for four days, quite dead, and came back to life? It's a major miracle. You know, it's funny, in the, in the program, uh, Dr. Oz, he was referring to these, these experiences as NDEs. We've been doing these initials lately, it seems, in sermons. NDEs, near-death experiences. Uh, both of these people had near-death experiences. And, and I wonder today, uh, what's the possibility that you've been experiencing a near-death experience? There's something in your life that doesn't just seem improbable. It seems impossible. There's something in your life that you've hoped or dreamed. It's been an aspiration or desire. It's been something you've wished for a family member. It's been, it's been something that it, it literally is breaking your heart. And you're saying, I just need a miracle. A big M major miracle. Because this isn't just improbable. This seems impossible. It doesn't seem possible that anything is going to change. And so this morning what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about how we tend to respond to our own personal near-death experiences. Not the physical ones, but the relational ones and the dream ones, the ambition ones, and all those things that you say, That doesn't stand a chance. It's gone. It's over. You may remember in this story that uh, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is informed by Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, that that, that Lazarus is sick. And Jesus hears about it, and he's talking to his disciples, and he says, we're not going to go just yet. God has something he wants to accomplish. 
And then when Lazarus finally dies and news comes, he says, okay, now we can go. Now God has something he wants to do. And immediately the disciples protest. They protest because they know that the people in Judea want to kill Jesus. They, they want his life to end. And the disciples want to protect their leader. And honestly, they probably want to protect themselves a little bit too. And so they say, you shouldn't go. But Jesus says, no, God has some work for us to do. Let's head, let's head to Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem. And the first three response we get from a, to a near-death experience, we have three major characters in this passage, not including, not including the guy in the grave, Lazarus. The first response to a near-death experience comes from one of the disciples. His name is Thomas. Now, you all are familiar with Thomas. Uh, his nickname is Doubting Thomas. He expressed doubt. I, I won't believe Jesus has risen until I touch his hands and touch his side. His nickname was actually Didymus. Didymus meaning twin. But, but Thomas has this tendency to express uh, a little bit of hopelessness. He, he, he expresses some despair. And in this passage, you know what he says? He ultimately says, all right, let's go with him and die. Let's just go die with him. And that's the experience that many of us have when it comes to our own near-death experiences. We respond with despair. Despair is this lethal combination of doubt and doom. We don't think God's going to do anything about it. And we just feel trapped. We feel doomed. We feel like nothing's going to happen anyway, so we might as well just give up. Just give up. We've been going through a, a family near-death experience. It's been tough. In December of, let's see, it would be 2010, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law were in a car accident, and, and it, it wrecked my sister-in-law's leg. I mean, she was, she was messed up. And uh, two months into that experience, my brother-in-law said, marriage over, I'm done. I, I want you to move out, of all things. She couldn't walk. She couldn't care for her own baby. And he said, move out. Take the kids. I don't care where you go. Just go. And I'm just, I'm trying to process this because I'll tell you what, when, when my little girl was born, and their baby's only two months old at this point, when my little girl was born, my, my world was completely changed. I can't imagine saying of my little girl or of my wife, of my, my three-year-old child, get out. I don't care where you go. I just want the house to myself. I'm looking at this, this stone-cold heart, and that seems like just a, a near-death experience there for me. He's not changing. And on Tuesday of this week, I get to go sit in a court in Springfield and testify in a child custody case for them. And I've got to be honest with you, my response to this for weeks has been despair. Because I look at it and I go, <laughs> I've got to go into something called the Illinois justice system, where... Are they really going to listen to what's going on here? No, they don't care that he committed adultery. They don't care that he threw his wife out in the street and his child out of the street and when she couldn't even walk. They don't care about those things. And my heart just kind of goes inside. I doubt and I feel doom. Why even go? Why even bother? Do you have one of those going on in your life? Just that sense of despair. No matter what happens, this thing's not going to come back from the dead. Maybe you were there this week. We've had quite a little moral debate going on, haven't we, when our president opened his mouth? And, and what happened from that that was intriguing is the number of commentators, both conservative and liberal, have said something like this. 
It doesn't matter what the Bible says. In about 10 years, this is a done deal because kids don't care. They don't care. It doesn't matter. And as believers in Jesus Christ and believers in the Bible, we're supposed to go, oh, buy a box of white flags, just give up. Just give up. This is a done deal. And we're told to have despair. That's where Thomas was. This legal combination of doubt and doom that caused him to say, I don't expect a miracle. All I expect is to see a corpse. Go to the second character in the story. We have Martha. Actually, a pair of sisters, Martha and Mary. And uh, Martha's reaction, interestingly, Martha and Mary both have the same reaction. They both say these very similar words. Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. For Martha, what she suffers is uh, different than Mary, I believe. When they hear that Jesus is coming, Martha gets up and goes out to meet Jesus. But the Bible says, very interestingly, that that Mary stayed at the house. Mary stayed back. And so Martha goes out to meet Jesus, and she looks him in the eyes, and she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yet she even still expresses, but I know you could do something if you want. She had expressed to God, to Jesus, we need you here. We need you here now. And Jesus didn't come when she thought he should come. Martha was suffering from this issue of delay. It was delay. Lord, if you had only been here. If you had only been here. How many of you have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed a prayer? And I'm not talking about one time or two times, one week or two weeks. I'm talking this has been months and years of a prayer. And you find yourself saying, Lord, what's the deal with the delay? Just answer. Just let me know. Just give me a yes or give me a no. But I'm sick of hanging out here in limbo. I'm tired of the delay. I can't handle the delay anymore. You see, for some of us, our response is going to be a lot more like Thomas. There's going to be the despair that just says, nothing I can do, I might as well give up. But for Martha, her frustration is this delay. Why are you waiting, God? Why are you waiting to answer? Is that where you are with your near-death experience right now? You still have this belief that God could do something. But you're like, when? When? I'm just sick of waiting. And then we have Mary. As I said, Mary's response is the same as Martha's. Lord, if you had been here, verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But but at the same time, there's something going on with Mary that's different than Martha. I don't want to read too much into this, okay? In one of the verses here, it says um, in verse 20, When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Lines like this kind of drive me crazy because we don't have why. It just says she stayed in the house. She didn't go out to meet Jesus. And what we're left to is some uh, sanctified imagination. Uh, We don't know exactly why she stayed in the house. And please don't think today that I'm declaring I know why. All I know is that she stayed in the house. But let me give you some thoughts. Maybe she stayed in the house because there were other mourners there and she felt like it was the right thing to do to stay with the other people who were mourning. It said that she was sitting. 
that was the traditional pose of a person in mourning, sitting, mourning. We see, we jo- we see Job sitting in sackcloth and ashes, mourning. Maybe she felt this responsibility to stay with the guests in her house who were mourning. Uh, we know something of the personality of these women. You remember a, a story where um, Jesus is being fed a meal. And Martha's scurrying around the house, getting everything ready, doing all that. And Mary's doing her finest uh, imitation of oblivious. She's just sitting there not paying attention to all the details of the meal. Well, she's not oblivious because she's focused on Jesus. And ultimately, Martha kind of gets a, a little scolding. Mary's doing the better thing here. The meal can wait. doesn't matter if the table's set just right. Uh, come sit with me. We, we see perhaps this little more activistic side in Mary or in Martha, Martha's the type that's going to do something about it. Mary might just sit back. Maybe she's got a little bit more of a passive side. Maybe she's seen that Martha is the one in the family that always fixes things. Do you have one of those in your family? When there's, when there's a problem, you have one person in your family that says, we're fixing this, we're fixing this today. And everybody else goes, oh, brother, here we go again. They're going to fix it. Maybe she saw that in Mary that, or Martha, that Martha the fixer was going to fix it, and she didn't want to be present. Because, I mean, we saw that line. Both of them said, ironically, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you think that line had swirled around the house once or twice that week? Jesus didn't show up. I wonder if part of the reason that Mary didn't show up came down to disappointment. It just came down to disappointment. She expected more from her friend. The passage repeatedly says Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. She was, he was friends with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. When you find out your best friend is sick, do you wait a few days? Or do you get there as fast as you can and do something about it? And Mary had seen Jesus do something about the pain and agony and physical torture that other people had gone through. She had seen the healings. And maybe she's thinking, come on, we're friends. We've been there for you. And now this is the way you respond to our near-death experience? This is the way you respond to our moment of need? But I thought we were friends. But I I thought we were special. Some of you say, but I thought if I prayed, I'd get an answer. But I thought if I just lived a good life, everything would go all right. And you have all your your but-if list. I did this, God. So why didn't you come through for me? You're going through some form of a near-death experience now or at some point in your life. And you have a tendency toward one of three responses. Despair, that lethal combination of doubt and doom. Delay, I'm sick of waiting. Or maybe if you were really honest, you'd just say, I'm disappointed with God. I'm disappointed. I expected more. You know, as the passage progresses, we find out two things. Right around John 11:35 is where she's having this, this encounter with Jesus saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it says, Jesus looked at the crowd. She, he looked at Mary. He looked at what was happening. And John 11:35 tells us those, those two little words, Jesus wept. He wept. In that moment, uh, he is moved with emotion and compassion for the people he's with, and maybe particularly for Mary. He's moved with compassion. 
One of the questions I hear from people when they're going through their near-death experiences is, where is God in this? Where is God? I think it's one of the things we really struggle with. You know, when you, when you think of the grand scheme pain of human history, when, when you think of people being tortured in prison camps in World War II, you think, where is God in this? When, when you think of a, a pair of towers crashing down on September 11th, you think, my word, the hand of God could have just been held out and stopped it. Where is God in this? Maybe in your own pain, seasons of abuse, times that you've gone through that have been dreadfully hard, you said, where is God in this? And I don't know, I think this passage tells us he's there and he's crying. He's there and he's, he's feeling the full sense of the pain that you're feeling. Honestly, I think it would be easier for God to fix it. I know as a parent, it is easier for me to fix my child's pain than to just sit there and be with them in their pain. I just want to fix it. But sometimes God says this near-death experience needs to happen in order that something greater can be revealed. And so what does he do? He weeps. And what we find in that is that Jesus really does care about the near-death experience you're going through. The other thing we find is that Jesus took action. The passage tells us that, that he said to them, take me, take me to the tomb. In fact, let's go ahead and read it. Didn't I tell you you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but he said it out loud for the sake of all those people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Unwrap him and let him go. What an amazing moment. I mean, again, this Absolutely impossible situation is resolved by Jesus in that moment. Jesus took action. We not only see in the Jesus wept that Jesus cares, but we see that Jesus can. Jesus can do anything. I can't think of too many things more impossible than taking someone who's been dead for four days and bringing them back to life. Any near-death experience we're having, it's tough to compare with the impossibility of that situation. Jesus not only cares, but Jesus can get involved in our dear-death experiences, and he can do something about them. You know, I look at this passage. Look at, look at that verse on the screen. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in gray clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. I wonder today, as you look at that verse, do you believe that? Do you believe that really happened? Is the Bible for you just some ancient version of Aesop's fables? Or do you really believe that happened? Again, it's, you know, it's been part of the struggle of the conversation this past week. It's been amazing the number of people that have said something like this. Can you really look at a Bible, a book that's several thousand years old and make moral decisions for our times on it, casting that sense of doubt on it? Can you look at this today and say, yes, that really happened? Because it did. 
whether we believe it or not. It did. Jesus took some action with these people, and I really believe that it's what he wants us to do in our own near-death experiences. So I want you to, first of all, right now, lock in on whatever yours is. Go ahead, get it in your mind. Maybe it's the hopelessness and despair over the path a child is taking. Maybe it's a, a relative that, like mine, I'm just going, will your heart ever change? Will you ever love your family again? Maybe it's the big moral issues of our times. I don't know what it is, but in, in some area of your life, your hopes and dreams and aspirations have died. And they need reviving. Jesus made three requests. His first request to the women was, take me to the tomb. Take me to the tomb. When's the last time you took Jesus to the site of your near-death experience? When's the last time you talked to him about it? When's the last time you just laid it out before him and said, here's what I'm going through, God. This is the situation. You know, it's funny. Sometimes we talk theoretically about praying, but we haven't really even prayed yet. We just say, yeah, I need to pray. When's the last time you just laid it out before God, let him know your emotion, your sadness, did a little screaming? When's the last time you just said, God, here it is. Here's my mess. I don't know that he's going to take care of our near-death experiences until we walk him to the tomb, until we walk him to the site of it, because what he wants to do if the miracle is going to happen is do something in us. He wants us to talk to him and lay it out there. And for some of you, your problem is you have talked about it. You have laid it out there, and you've done it for a long time. And you're saying, I have talked and talked and talked. The delay is my issue. Which brings us to the next thing he said. Not just take me to the tomb, but take away the stone. And and I love what Mary says, or what Martha says. It said she protested. It's been four days. He's going to really smell. Starts with the word but. (laughs) And and this is is where our but happens, doesn't it? We we pray, God, I wish you'd do something. and, And God's saying, all right, roll away the stone. And we're saying, no, God... He can't do that. If, if we do this, this will get stirred up, or that will happen, or there will be this problem, or something else. And we come up with all these excuses for not taking, a, taking the action of simply rolling away the stone and saying, God, do what you're going to do. Do what you're going to do. And then comes the third part, where he says, take off the grave clothes. What if Lazarus for the rest of his life had just been walking around wrapped like a mummy? You know, oh, that's the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. Now he says immediately, take off the grave clothes. You know what? A lot of us, we like to walk around in our grave clothes. We like to act like dead people. We, we like to, to stay stuck in our near-death experience instead of being the people, said, God says we are, people who have been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Does this mean that our situation has been resolved? No, it does not necessarily mean that. But it does mean that I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that there's something greater going on in this world than what I can see here and now. And I'm going to live like someone who's alive instead of living like someone who's dead. Take him to your tomb. Talk about it. Roll away the stone. 
Give him the opportunity to work. Stop making excuses for it. Take off the grave clothes and start living like someone who is found in Christ instead of somebody who's buried in a grave. Now, I asked you to fill out that card. Go ahead and take your card and on the back side. I'm going to ask you two sets of questions. The first set really comes down to this. In your near-death experiences, you probably have one of three ways of dealing with your problems. You either slump immediately into despair, doom and doubt, it's over, there's nothing I can do about it, I quit. Delay. God, I'm sick of waiting. I'm sick of waiting. It seems like I'm always waiting. Disappointment which may be the toughest one of all to admit. God, I'm really disappointed with you. I thought things would be better. I thought things would be different. I thought things would change. And now I'm going to ask you, if you will, to check off one of three affirmations. I believe Jesus cares. I do. I believe he cares. I believe Jesus can. He can raise this corpse if he wants to. And I'm ready to take Jesus to my tomb, take away the stones, stone, and take off the grave clothes. I'm going to pray, and you can keep staring at the screen, and you can keep processing that. Because this isn't just a quick... Check it off. Yeah, that's neat. Now let's go to brunch. This is supposed to be a life-changing experience. One where we really encounter the Savior who one day said, Lazarus, come out. And he did. Father, I pray for these, my friends in this room today. Through these near-death experiences, you are given the, empower, the ability to, the opportunity to show your power. I mean, you can demonstrate your power in a way that is unthinkable. And through these near-death experiences, we're given the opportunity to trust you. So there's one part that is just all you. If you're going to exhibit your power, we can't wait to be a part of it. But God, there's this other side that is all us where we have to trust. We have to trust that whether a body comes out of that grave or it doesn't, that you know what's best. And that's what our relationship with you really comes down to, a willingness to trust your wisdom, trust your judgment, to allow the near-death experiences to form us into the person you desire instead of us forming you to our opinions. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our servers are coming to give us communion. Yet another miracle, another resurrection, another man who was gone, three days dead risen because of a Savior. Take a bread and cup and go ahead and take communion when you're ready.
And while you do, I'd really encourage you to listen to the words of the song, sing to the words of the song, and see how they match what we've talked about this morning. words aren't just a theory, God. The the music isn't just to get us whipped into a frenzy to try to face something that we can't face on our own and hope for the best. You move mountains. You do that, Jesus. You raise people from the dead. You do that, Jesus. And as we look at our own near-death experience today, it's not so much what do we think about the experience, it's what, what do we think about you? Do we really believe you can do something about this? Or are you just a, a neat myth that goes right there with Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy? Do we really believe? Because that's what you're calling on from us as your people. People who really believe. We look forward to the way that you're going to revive the corpses of our near-death experiences. And let me say the other side. We look forward to the way that we'll trust you even if you don't. Because when it comes right down to it, it's all about us and you. And whether or not we're growing closer to you. Not just getting our problems solved, not just getting our way. Are we really growing closer to you or not? Are we growing more like you or not? We give ourselves to you today, Jesus. Amen. Our servers are coming right now. They'll uh, take your offering and your card. You can put both in the, in the basket at this time. And I want to I tell you about our, our project that we're going to be doing in two weeks. My, my wife, Kim, had uh, a great aunt and, and great uncle, Kate and Jack. Kate and Jack were um, incredibly special to us. When we got married, uh, we packed up the little rust-colored Tercel and moved to Florida, and we lived in a couple-bedroom of apartment that they had above their house. And we got the experience of, of living with these fantastic seniors in, in St. Pete, Florida. And... Um, it's a season of my life that I'll never trade. Loved getting to know them. Loved getting to know um, about the world that they knew that I would never touch. A, a world of depression, a world of uh, World War II, and all, all the experiences that they had that, that were nothing like any of ours. Memorial Day would come, and they didn't call it Memorial Day. They called it Decoration Day. That was their name for it. And it seemed crazy to me, but... They'd drive to Iowa sometimes to put flowers and flags on a grave and drive home. I'd be like, that's a long way to go to see a headstone. Mattered to them. And as I think about them, I think about other seniors, and I think, wow, it's so easy in our society to forget about people like seniors who are just, you know, they may be in the nursing home, They may be in a condition that they just can't get out and be with other people. And so what we're going to do is use our Memorial Day weekend to serve some seniors. 
And we, we have people in our church that, that work for offices in the county, and it's really cool because sometimes they're given stuff and they're told, give this to organizations that can do something with it. So as you walked in today, you saw three really cool Christmas baskets. Now, we're not going to hand them Christmas baskets. We want to be a little better than that. What we're going to do is disassemble these baskets, put the pieces together in something that's patriotic, something that's cool and colorful and that will remind them of Decoration Day, but let them know they're not forgotten. And we want to add pieces to that, too. And we'll be sending you an email later today of the pieces that you might be able to add and bring that would make for a really special basket for, for someone who might be feeling forgotten on a day that, um, that we're all just out having fun. So that's what we're doing in two weeks. We brought this stuff today so that you can take a look at it and just start letting your imagination go wild. Well, how would you put a basket together? What might you add to it? We also want to encourage you now to start praying by yourself, but praying with your family, praying with your kids over how this might be used to really bring an impact to our hearts and to their hearts. So let's make this a truly spiritual experience and see the way God could use this in the life of someone else uh, to bring them uh, the cheer that could only come from Jesus. So we'll be doing that in two weeks at the warehouse one service, 9.30. Uh, there is some prep that needs to be done for that. If you'd like to be a part of the team that will be preparing for that, you can check that off on your card. Your card's already in the offering. But if you go back right now, <laughs> no, you can go ahead and respond to an email later today that we'll be sending out. Uh, this is going to be an incredibly meaningful serve. And I hope that you jump in and get involved and we make this a day that lets some people know they, they may be out of sight, but they're not out of mind. Let's stand together and sing as we leave. As we go, check out the words that you're about to sing. Our prayer for you is that the greatness of our God will be able to overshadow in your mind the near death that you may be facing. Great are you, Lord, you're my